Mark chapter 8. And our theme for camp is, of course, you know, looking unto Jesus, seeing Christ, fixing our eyes on, on him. And, and it's my prayer that that's what God will do in our hearts through his word tonight. Let's start by reading Mark chapter 8, just a little section tonight, verse 34 to 38. Mark 8, 34 to 38. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." This is the very word of the living God. This is a point in Mark's gospel where Mark, writing to persecuted Christians, trying to tell Peter's version of the gospel story, is very concerned that you would understand what the disciples were starting to understand. And that's this, who is Jesus? And for Mark, it's not... A theological question only. It's not a question about the identification of, of Jesus, a historical person. For Mark, Jesus was his Savior, his Master, his Lord. For Mark, who Jesus was deeply impacted who he is. And I wonder if you know who you are. I wonder if you think very much about how you describe yourself. I know that we live in an age where identity is being redefined in totally subjective ways. And people choose to identify themselves in all kinds of ways, fluctuating their identity kind of based on what they would like to be seen as. But I wonder how you identify yourself. I wonder if you've ever had the chance to kind of Stop and, and say, this is who I am. Maybe you met somebody this week and, and they said, where are you from? Or what church do you go to? Or is this your first time at Regen? And, and maybe, maybe you know, you, you, were, you were enjoying some uh, meat similar into the cafeteria and the meat, maybe the same meat you had for breakfast and lunch the day before and dinner the day before that and breakfast that day. So maybe you're having some recycled meat and you're just talking, you know, about yourself. What do you, what do you like? What are you interested in? Do you like recycled meat? And so I wonder if you have a chance to think very much about yourself, about who you are, about how you, who you claim to be. Because who Jesus is has everything to do with who you are because he is creator and you are creature. So who are you? Some of you just finished your college essays, writing a biographical sketch, an autobiographical sketch of yourself talking about your interests, talking about your life experiences, trying to wrap up the 18 years that you have 
uh, invested in this planet and try to describe it to a total stranger to let them into a school. Uh, Some of you are are preparing for that. You have counselors at your school that help you craft this idea of really telling your story. One of my favorite accounts of that was written by an author quite a while ago. His name was Hugh Gallagher. He was a satirist, an essayist, uh, obviously a comedian. But he, he actually wrote this college entrance essay and sent it to a bunch of schools. And this is what it said. In order for the admission staff of our college to get to know you, the applicant, better, we ask that you answer the following question. Are there any significant experiences you've had or accomplishments you've realized that have helped to define you as a person? This is what Mr. Gallagher wrote. I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in the area of heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can... Hey, kid with the trumpet, don't. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed. I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, an outlaw in Peru. Using only a garden hoe and a large glass of water, I once single-handedly defended a small village in the Amazon basin from a horde of ferocious army ants. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. I'm the subject of numerous documentaries. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. I enjoy urban hang gliding. On Wednesdays after school, I repair electrical appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. I've been caller number nine and have won the weekend passes. Last summer, I toured New Jersey with a traveling centrifugal force demonstration. I bat 400. My deft floral arrangements have earned me fame in international botany circles. Children, trust me. I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. I perform several covert operations for the CIA. I sleep once a week. When I do sleep, I sleep in a chair. While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and my bills are all paid. On weekends, to let off steam, I participate in full contact origami. Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life, but I forgot to write it down. I have made extraordinary four-course meals using only a muli and a toaster oven. I breed prize-winning clams. I have won bullfights in San Juan, cliff-diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I have played Hamlet. I have performed open-heart surgery. I have spoken with Elvis. But I have not yet gone to college. So how do you describe yourself? 
Who are you? Are you an artist? Are you an athlete? Are you funny? Are you smart? Are you creative? Are you ambitious? Are you interested? Are you spiritual? Who are you? How do you describe yourself? Who, who really are you when, when no one's around? What, what are you like? And I think the big question this week is, are you a Christian? Are you? Is it real? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Would you describe yourself that way? Would you describe yourself as a follower of Jesus? Because in this passage, right after Jesus reveals who he is to his disciples, his followers, he tells them if they're going to be his followers, his disciples, then there's something that they need to understand. They need to understand what it means to follow him. Because here's the crazy thing. You can say that you're a Christian. You can call yourself a disciple. You can go to church and and do Christian stuff, go to summer camp, have have Christian parents, Christian grandparents. You, You can say you're a Christian, but really you're only truly a follower of Jesus if you do what Jesus says followers of Jesus do. You see, Jesus showed his disciples who he was in this clarifying moment in the the life of our Lord. They had all these expectations about who they thought Jesus was and what, what he was going to do. And then Jesus started to reveal who he was. And now that he's done that, he tells them that if they're going to call themselves followers of him, if they're going to call themselves disciples, if they're going to be Christians, then they're, they need to understand the terms of discipleship, the requirements of following Jesus. And they didn't have it right. Jesus' own disciples did not initially understand what it meant to follow Jesus. And I think that there is a ton of students here tonight that would consider themselves followers of Jesus, who would call themselves Christians, but don't really know what that means. Or maybe their definition of what it means to follow Jesus is different than what Jesus says it means to follow him. I also know that there's huge groups of kids here this weekend, or that was this week that are, this, this month, whatever this is, this is it's, it's a never-ending experience. How are we only halfway through? that are indifferent, apathetic, uninterested. I mean, the games are fun. Who doesn't like sumo? But when it comes to things that matter, the Bible, worshiping God, there's just a coldness and an indifference. And so I think you need to know, if you're one of these spiritually indifferent people, you need to know what it means to choose to not follow Jesus because that's where you are. And I think as you think about who you are, and, and if you are truly not a disciple of Jesus, then Jesus tonight would clarify for you in this very passage what that implies as well. 
And so I want you to hear from Jesus briefly on, on who he is. We've been looking at that all, all camp long and we'll continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. And so I briefly want to remind you who Jesus is. But then I want to look at Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38 and answer the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a disciple? And get rid of all the baggage, all the wrong answers, Everything but what Jesus says it means to follow him. And so let's look. What makes Jesus, verse 34, call the people to himself and his disciples also and say what he's about to say? Well, it is his identity. What's happened so far is Jesus has been working miracles and and the disciples have been gaining an understanding of who he is. And, and now they've come to the, the high point of their understanding. Jesus has been opening blind eyes of, of blind people and opening up deaf ears of deaf people. But in a spiritual sense, he's opening blind eyes of the disciples, deaf ears of the disciples. They're, they're now seeing more clearly who Jesus is. And they're starting to understand more clearly what Jesus demands of them and, and why he came to this world. And And in this moment where Jesus is pressing his disciples in their understanding and in their vision of who he is, in verse 27, look up just a tiny bit from the passage we're in, it says, Jesus and his disciples went to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? And so they answered, John the Baptist, and some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you Say that I am. Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Peter got it right. In Matthew's account, Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, Simon, uh, son of Jonah, but God, my father, has opened your eyes to this truth. Peter says Jesus is the Christ. And don't misunderstand, Peter wasn't just saying Jesus' last name. That's not what the Christ was. It wasn't like Jesus be Christ or something like that. Christ was his title. Christ meant Messiah. It meant anointed one. It meant the promised one of God. To be the Christ was to be Messiah. And so Peter is saying, you're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the one that that the, the Old Testament has been promising. You're the one who will sit on David's thrones. In no uncertain terms, Peter is saying that Jesus is the divine son of God. The one that was promised, anointed, chosen, the royal figure who the scriptures had said would bring God's rule and reign to the earth. The long anticipated savior, the one who was destined to, according to their understanding, the one who would sit on that empty throne of David and and finally fulfill God's promise to bring the people back into their land and give them victory over all their enemies. And they had pressing political concerns because there was Roman soldiers everywhere. And they were not in control of their own fate and their destiny and their land, but they were oppressed by this 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 army and this, this political power that was so much greater than the people of Israel. And so when they said, you are the Christ, they had every expectation that Jesus was going to fix the problems that they faced in their nation. Just like David on the throne, he would, 
rebuild this temple. He would restore the monarchy. And this son of David would be the greatest king that Israel would ever known. The Caesars would have nothing on the Christ. And so in their expectation for the Messiah that they got from the Old Testament, at the time of Jesus, they thought there'll be political power. There'll be freedom from the thumb of oppressive Rome. There'll be national identity. There'll be restoration. There'll be peace. There'll be prosperity. There'll be victory over enemies. The disciples half of them probably thought we'll be his soldiers we'll be his vice presidents it's why you catch your disciples getting in weird arguments all the time about like who's going to sit at your right hand and your left hand they, they weren't thinking like we think like when jesus is in heaven on his throne they were literally thinking like when jesus is made mr president king of israel like can i be vp can he be secretary of state I think I'd look good in a secretary of state hat. That's how they thought. And so they were confused about what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. And in some ways it's understandable. I mean, when you read the Old Testament and the promises about Messiah, it was, it was for anticipating this, this great era of Messiah's rule that began with Jesus as a baby, that was all the way through his incarnation, his humanity, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, and then the age to come. But in the Old Testament, those were all kind of phased together. And so they didn't understand how this all was going to work. And they had no comprehension of, of the kind of Messiah that they were receiving. He hadn't made any moves to get rid of Rome. He was just teaching and helping and teaching more and healing and healing. And he didn't even have a sword. And so when Peter said, you're the Christ, it was like saying, you're going to be the king. And all the disciples were ready for that. And so Jesus knows that their expectations of who he is are all messed up. And in verse 31, he says, he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Okay, that is not what they were expecting. They thought he would be welcomed to the nation of Israel, exalted on his throne, made the king, given the army, conquer Rome. That's what they expected because that's what the scripture said that he would be a king, that he would sit on David's throne, that he would rule forever. And so Jesus says, I'm going to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. Well, what's that? That's everybody in charge. That's all the significant people in Israel. How is he supposed to be king and ruler and Messiah, God's chosen one, the son of David, if everybody in Israel is going to reject him? It makes no sense to them. Do you know who John Wooden is? Basketball people? He was the wizard of Westwood. He was the coach of UCLA. He coached for, I think, 12 seasons, and he won 10 national championships. No one has ever done anything like that in the history of college basketball. No one ever will. 
I mean, he was incredible, his meticulous detail. He would teach his players. He, he taught and coached some of the best players to ever play basketball. He taught them basic fundamental things like how to wear their socks and how to put on their shoes so they wouldn't get blisters. He was Mr. Meticulous. Off the court, he was awesome. He was a, a man of faith. He was a godly man. But the guy could, he could coach. And UCLA has never, ever been the same since. They've had all kinds of different coaches. They even hired the former coach of the Lobos, University of New Mexico. I mean, that is a sad situation. But if I, if I told you, say I'm a UCLA donor person, and I said I got an inside track, there's a coach coming to UCLA basketball who is like Wooden. He's like Wooden 2.0. He's the son of Wooden. He has the spirit and power of Wooden. He has John Wooden's DNA. He's so John Wooden. It's going to be amazing. The program is going to get the greatest coach they've ever had. Even greater than John Wooden. This is going to be an incredible era for UCLA basketball. But they're not going to win any game. The Bruins would be troubled by this information. They would have a hard time fathoming how could he be the just like John Wooden, but not a winner, not a champion. That's what was going through the disciples' minds. Jesus is saying something to them that they just cannot compute. They cannot process. He's going to be rejected by everybody. And not only is he going to be rejected and suffer, but he's going to be killed And then in three days, rise again. What? And Jesus spoke this word openly. And Peter was sick of it. And so Peter, who's very supportive of King Jesus, of Jesus for president, uh, 22, puts his arm around Jesus and says, literally, look at what he says. Verse 32, Peter took him aside like Jesus you know, I called you the Christ. Let me, let me talk to you privately just for a moment. And he began to rebuke him. He said, Jesus, don't ever talk like that. You're going to destroy all the momentum we have going here. Like the campaign for Jesus for king, you're going to mess it up with all this negative talk. Like, let's, let's boost the image. Let's, like, I, I know a hairdresser. Let's get you going. He rebukes Jesus. And Jesus then turns around and looks at the disciples and he rebukes Peter in front of them and says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So there is some serious misunderstanding going on. Serious misunderstanding about who the Messiah was and how this was all gonna work out, who Jesus really, truly was. They were getting it, but only getting it in part. And there was an attached misunderstanding to what it meant to follow him. Because they were all in for following Jesus if that meant that they would rule and reign with him. They were all in for being Jesus' disciples if he was going to be made king and he was going to get rid of Rome and he was going to be this awesome, powerful Messiah. But now he's talking about suffering and dying and they're not exactly sure what this means to be a disciple of a dead person. And so there's a lot of correcting to do. And that's why I think this passage is a lot like this passage. 
I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what he requires of us. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what it means in a most fundamental, basic way of what it means to be a Christian, to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. And this passage answers it so clearly. And after rebuking Peter for being satanic in his thinking, He calls the people, verse 34, to himself with his disciples also and says to them. Two things happen in this passage. One, Jesus defines what it means to follow him. And then two, Jesus shows the consequences, the results of what it means to follow him and what it means to not follow him. It's really simple. That's what we'll look at. Verse 34, what does it mean to follow Jesus? According to Jesus, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, there's something weird to notice right off the bat in verse 34. If anyone wishes to come after me, he says, and then at the end he says to follow me. Okay, so Jesus to follow you means to follow you. Okay, so there's already something weird about that little deal. And then there's this list. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, which you hear that and you think, what is deny myself? That means like, don't give myself what I want, right? So like, I don't want kale. I don't want any more recycled meat. Is is that what Jesus is asking? Self-denial? And then to take up his cross, maybe we're a little closer to understanding that because we talked about the cross in detail last night, but we also still think crosses are pretty, like make good necklaces, good jewelry, stained glass. But it's in this synonymous statement where Jesus says it in four different ways to say the same thing. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means first and foremost to come after me. And it's an invitation that is wide open. Jesus says, if anyone, if anyone, there is no one excluded from the invitation to follow Jesus. If you are within the sound of the voice of the preacher tonight, you are invited to come. If you are wondering, you know, I hear about the sovereignty of God. I don't know if God chose me. You know, I heard about predestination. I think I'm probably, you know, I never get picked at kickball, so I'm probably not picked on this team either. So I'm going to go find my tail. It's an Eeyore reference. I want to tell you something. This invitation is for you. If anyone wishes to come after me, anyone, without regard. I love that he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, You see, following Jesus is the beginning. It's the invitation. What it means to follow him is then defined by the the next phrases. He must deny himself. And when we hear those words, we do think of diet plans or eating kale or 
self-denial or self-discipline. And certainly that's part of self-denial, but that's not really what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about something bigger than that. A renouncing of something more fundamental to yourself than that. To deny yourself is what it means to follow Jesus. And self-denial means that you put your desires, your ambitions, your goals, your life, yourself, all of you, aside. Your agenda doesn't matter now. You just want to go where Jesus goes. That's how radical it is to follow Jesus. To deny yourself is to follow Jesus. And it means that you renounce your own ambitions. That you follow Jesus wholly, even to death. Wherever Jesus goes, you will go. And the disciples have been an an example of that in a physical way, right? They're fishermen and Jesus says, leave your boat and follow me. And they literally leave their boat and they walk after Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't invent the concept of discipleship. There was disciples all over the ancient world. Every philosopher from Plato to Socrates, they all had disciples, adherents, learners. They, they all had, they were all teachers and disciples. They were all masters and pupils. They knew what a disciple was. It was an adherent. It was someone who followed the teaching. Someone who literally often would walk around with the person, taking in their wisdom and applying it to their lives. And so when they left their stuff behind, they understood that they weren't part of the driving committee for Jesus. They weren't going to steer this thing anymore. That's why Peter got rebuked so harshly. You're not in charge when you follow Jesus. Jesus is in charge. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. He is the master. You are his servant. And so we deny ourselves, our desires, our ambition, our goals, our life, our self. We put it all aside in favor of Jesus' desires and Jesus' ambitions and Jesus' goal and Jesus' life and Jesus' glory and Jesus' gain. It's not about us when we follow Jesus. We become secondary. We become less. He becomes more. And the terms of discipleship are clear. What it means to follow him is clear. To be a Christian means to come after him and to put our own life aside. And then he says to take up his cross. They're all synonyms. They're all synonymous statements. And to take up the cross to all of these disciples who heard Jesus say that, things became very, very serious. The cross is jewelry. The cross is pretty. There's one in the wall at our church. It's wooden. It's well lit. Uh, Nobody thinks of it and goes, you know, there's a noose hanging in your building. There's an electric chair on your earlobe, which would be so metal by the way. But for these disciples, that's exactly what they thought. When Jesus said, take up your cross, it was the equivalent of saying to you, hey, you want to be a part of what what I'm doing? You want to come with me? Then grab your coffin and let's go. That's what Jesus was saying. 
That's why I read you the passage before this one where he, he insisted that he's going to suffer, be rejected, and die. He is changing their expectations. You see, they have put the kingship of Jesus and the glory of Jesus on the wrong timeline. They had just put it up front instead of understanding that all of this was necessary to accomplish salvation, to show his righteousness, to prove that he was who God said he was and to accomplish redemption for all who would follow him. The glory will come, but they wanted the glory now. And so Jesus has to help them understand that there's a cross before there's a crown. You must deny yourself if you're going to come after Jesus. You must take up your cross. That means fatality. That means an instrument of death. A willingness not just to renounce the the former life that you had, the former way you were going, but a willingness to renounce all. Your very life for Jesus. The definition of discipleship is to take up your cross. To grab a coffin and follow him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no other way to follow Jesus. Embracing his life, walking in his steps, enduring every difficulty for his sake. Have you heard people say like, my, my cross to bear? Like they talk about a difficulty in their life. Like I got the hiccups, it's my cross to bear. I knew a girl that was in our college ministry She had permanent hiccups. Have you heard of that? It was legit. Her name, we'll call her Megan to protect her uh, her identity. Her name was Megan. Um, And she had hiccups her whole life, huh, Marilee? Real. And, you know, I could imagine someone like that saying, like, I have hiccups. It's my cross to bear. You know, people have a hard thing in their life. They say, I got cross to bear. I I have male pattern baldness. It's my cross to bear. Don't laugh at it. It's my cross to bear. That stuff, though extremely discouraging, is not a cross. A cross is an instrument of death. And when Jesus says, take up the cross, deny yourself, embrace my life, He's talking about the difficulties that you'll endure for his sake. When Mark wrote this, Christians were being burned at the stake. He was going back, writing the history of Jesus Jesus and his disciples, the cross and the resurrection, and all around him, Christians were being killed. And so Peter, as he's telling Mark this story, and Mark is writing it down and arranging this material under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark is well aware that his first readers of his gospel had lost some of their friends and families to martyrdom. And so they understood very well that Jesus wasn't saying, well, you'll go through some tough stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks, Lord. He was saying, you will follow me wherever I go. And he just said, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. Grab your coffin and follow me. We don't think about discipleship like this. Do you understand that the word disciple is simply a synonym for Christian? We hear discipleship or disciple or disciple now and we think it's like, 
the next level of Christianity. Like you get saved and then like you meet with your youth pastor six times at Starbucks and then your disciple. Discipleship isn't like a grade of meat, like, you know, prime choice select or whatever. It's not like F-D-C-B-A. You know, discipleship is like a higher level. I mean, before we were called Christians, they were just called disciples or followers of Jesus's way. To be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. It's to be a Christian. It's to follow him, walk with him, and go where he goes. And so the difficulties that you endure in life, everybody endures difficulties in life. But the difficulties you endure for his sake, because you follow him, whether that's being mocked by your friends for being a goody two-shoes, whether that's holding to a biblical sexual ethic when the whole world is going crazy, whether that's worshiping Jesus and praying for your meal when everybody else just eats it with their hands and face, whatever it is, when you're doing something for Jesus' sake and it causes suffering, it causes persecution, it causes mockery, that is starting to experience take up the cross. But the ultimate expression of cross-taking, of cross-carrying, is to follow Jesus to die. And so the disciples have already said, I will follow you, Jesus, but Jesus now picks up a cross and says, well, you better pick one up too. And the true disciple will say, If you are going to go die in Jerusalem, then I'll go too. Being a Christian means following Jesus, coming after me, denying himself, taking up his cross, and then following me. Why is it weird? It's not. It's not weird that he repeats himself because following Jesus means you actually take action. To say you'll come after him is a totally different thing than actually following him, actually walking where he walks, taking that path of self-denial and cross-bearing and walking the steps of Jesus wherever he leads you, you will follow. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? To die to yourself, to take up that cross, to go wherever Jesus goes. Self-denial is the inner attitude that marks a follower of Jesus. And cross-bearing is the activity that we do. We do whatever it is that Jesus does. We go where he goes. And we're not surprised when they treat us badly because they, taught, they, they treated Jesus badly. And then Jesus launches into a description of the consequences or the results of following him. And this is so important because this applies to every single one of you, whether you're a Jesus follower or you're going to go your own way. He actually lays it all out and he describes the situation of every single person in this world, every single person present in this room. Verse 35, here's the consequences of following Jesus, the results of it. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Hmm, tricky. It's almost Yoda-like, isn't it? There's some kind of riddle here. To save your life, you lose it. But to lose your life for his sake and the gospels will save it. Hmm, 
bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? Well, it's a paradox. You know what a paradox is? Not if you were one of the contestants the other night. Those kids don't know anything. My goodness. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It was because they were scared. I hope. Would you just learn the state capitals, please? All right. What was I talking about? Yeah, I'm talking about the, the paradox. So a paradox is a seemingly self-contradictory statement. Like, you got to spend money to make money. If you're a cheapskate, that makes no sense. If you're a businessman, you know exactly what that means. you got to spend money to make money. What's a paradox? A paradox, uh, the beginning of the end. When Josh said it's the middle of the camp, I said, it's the beginning of the end. See how that works? It's a paradox. Beginning, end. A paradox. You know, deep down, you are really shallow. It was a paradox. I wasn't actually saying that to this poor person. A paradox, a seemingly self-contradictory statement. Jesus says, whoever wishes, just as he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, whoever wishes, whoever of all these followers, whoever of all this crowd, whoever of all these disciples or non-disciples, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The paradox is this. You save your life by losing it. He's talking about your life your lasting life, the real part of who you are. You could put the word soul in there. You could put your true self in there. You could put you now and you a thousand years from now because the reality of your life is this. You will live forever. Every single one of you will live forever. You had a birth date and then from there on, past the day that they'll write on your tombstone, you will continue to exist. You will live forever. The real you, the eternal you. But that's the life that Jesus is talking about, gaining and losing. You see, if you follow Jesus, it will require you to throw your destiny, your life aside because you put it in his hands. But if you insist on following your own way of grabbing onto your own destiny, of being your own boss and your own man, of making your own rules and saying, I will do what makes me happy. I will not follow Jesus. I will not obey Jesus. Then you are in essence throwing your life away. You save your life by losing your life. The self-denying and cross-bearing essence of discipleship means that to, to gain life, you lose your life. And you lose your life by saving it. This is what it means to bear the cross. To deny self and bear the cross is the essence of discipleship. And when you deny yourself and when you pick up your cross and follow Jesus, Jesus says you are saving your life by losing it. But if you avoid bearing the cross, if you do not want to suffer with Jesus, if you do not want to be his disciple, then Jesus says that you are losing your life by saving it. And so either way, you're going to lose your life. Those of you who follow Jesus will lose your life in this life. 
Because it will not be yours anymore. It will belong to Jesus and you will go where he goes. And maybe you'll get your head chopped off for being a Christian. Or maybe you just won't get a promotion at work. Or maybe people will make fun of you in college or or whatever. But you're going to gain your life because you belong to Jesus. By losing it. Or you won't be a disciple. You want to chase your pleasure, your sin. You want to do what you want to do. You want to rebel. You want to follow your own way. Well, you know what? You'll gain your life. It's yours. Do with it what you want. Go wild, go crazy, but someday you will die. And guess what? Your life keeps going. And now you have lost it. And you've lost it for good. It's gone. You follow him, you lose your life, you save it. You refuse to follow him, you save your life, only to lose it in the end. Nobody is accepted from this rule. Because with Jesus, losers are keepers. And if you want to save your life, there's only one way to do so. If you want to rescue your life, if you want to redeem your life, And if you choose to be consumed with your own life, your own desires, your own wants, then you will lose your life. And you will meet the judgment of God for all eternity. Jesus wants you to put this on a scale of gain and loss. That's what he's talking about. How do you save your life by losing it? How do you lose your life for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake? That's the message of salvation. By saving it, Jesus wants you to put this on a, a massive scale. You know, one, one side goes down, the other side goes up. It's a, it's a scale to weigh things out, to decide a matter. And so in verse 36, he, he weighs it up for you. Because you're right here at this point where you have to decide, are you going to save your life by losing it and following Jesus? Or are you going to hoard your life and keep your days, all 80 years of them or whatever, and do with them whatever you want so that in the end you will end up losing your life? Jesus wants you to make that decision, but he wants you to make it with wisdom. So listen to what he says. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul have you ever thought about gaining the whole world what's involved in gaining the whole world to rule it all to have it all all power all wealth all prestige all respect for everybody to look at you and think you're the greatest to be the biggest celebrity in the world, to have the biggest contract in sports you could imagine, to be the richest, the wealthiest, the most influential, to be all powerful. Can you imagine what it would be like to gain the whole world? Imagine it if you had it all, every single bit of it. Where would you choose to live? Would you own a mountain? Would you live in a mansion on the beach? What would you drive? A different car every day of the week. What would you do? Who would you hang out with? What else would you acquire? Because imagine, Jesus says, if you gained the whole world. He wants to know how much it would 
matter to you, how much it would profit you, how much it would all be worth, add it all up. What kind of millionaire, what kind of billionaire, what kind of trillionaire could you be? What would it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit, lose, throw out your soul? What weighs more? Maybe you'll live to be a hundred because you eat kale. And you gain a lot of influence and significance in this world's estimation. A lot of money, a lot of celebrity, a lot of significance. Everyone thinks you're pretty and you're smart and you're funny and you're awesome and you're famous and you're great. And then you die. And your soul is lost. How much is your soul worth? I'm not asking you that. Jesus is in verse 37. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Eternal life, friend. What would be worth sacrificing for eternal life? Elsewhere, Jesus tells the story of the pearl of great price. A man finds a a, a pearl, a treasure in a field. But it's not his field and he wants the rights to that pearl because he knows it's so invaluable. So he sells everything he has, it says, in his joy. Sells all his possessions to go and buy this field so that that pearl can be his, that treasure can be his. He understood loss and gain. And that's what Jesus is trying to press on us. There is gain and there is loss. There is apparent gain and then eternal loss. There is apparent loss and then eternal gain. Jesus tells you, you have to decide, are you going to follow him? Because if you wish to follow him, you are more than welcome. You are invited to come after him, to deny yourself, to take up your cross. So it could be fatal. You'll have to renounce everything that is your normal, natural right and preference. And you're going to have to follow Jesus. That's the action required. Walk where he walks and you will save your soul. But if you do not, you'll lose it. You'll forfeit it. You'll exchange it for fleeting and temporary pleasure. If you choose to be consumed with your own life, you will lose your life If you want glory now, you will have no glory in the future. And that's what the disciples had to come to understand. And they would learn this message and they would be taught this message over and over again as Jesus took step after step after step and went closer and closer to the cross. And now you fast forward the tape. You have the losers who follow Jesus who become keepers. And you have the keepers who reject Jesus, who become the losers. And then time is over and judgment day comes. And what you do now will show then, verse 38, 
He's already showed us gain and loss are the consequences of following Jesus. And now he reminds us that honor and shame are the destiny of those who follow and do not follow Jesus. Honor and shame. Gain and loss lead to honor and shame. Verse 38, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. Do you see that the disciples, in wanting Jesus to be king, were not wrong, they were just early. A time is coming, friend, that Jesus who died on the cross did not stay dead because he was God of very God, because he was sinless, because God vindicated every one of his claims, God rose Jesus from the dead and exalted him up and ascended him to heaven on high. Jesus sits at the right hand of God and Jesus will return and he will set every wrong thing right and he will judge all those who rejected him and he will embrace all those who found in him freedom and love and forgiveness and purpose and self-denial and cross-bearing and discipleship. And if you were ashamed of him in this world, he will be ashamed of you. And if you honored him in this world and received the scorn and shame of the unbelievers on you, you will be honored by Jesus who is coming in glory with all his holy angels. They thought he was going to have guys with hats and spears be his army. He's coming. And he's coming in charge and he's coming to rule and reign. But he's got myriads and myriads of flaming holy angels attending his glory. Or you can be indifferent. You can look at your phone and you can just keep scrolling until you're dead. You can keep trying to get popular at school. You can get the career that you'll enjoy so much and you can gain as much money as you can. And you can kind of sheepishly look at your shoes when somebody talks about Jesus because you're ashamed of him. I mean, you know what it means to be ashamed, right? I mean, you have a dad. My wife continually reminds me, like, you can't wear that. You have teenage daughters. Not this. This one got approved. It didn't. I went rogue. (laughs) But we all understand. It doesn't have to be your dad. Be nice to your dad. He's getting old. You have a friend who acts dumb, right? like at a store or something, and you're ashamed. You're like, oh my goodness, stop. They didn't point at him, that's not nice. We also know what it means to be honored. To be proud to be associated with someone. Your basketball team wins the state championships. You say, I go to that school. That's how this all ends. It ends with honor and shame. It ends with gain and loss. Apathy, indifference, 
They will come face to face with the exact opposite of apathy and indifference, which is glory or shame. Glory in the future rather than famous self-obsession in the presence. We live in an age that is adulterous and sinful just like Jesus did. And they were selfish and self-concerned. And we live in an age of selfies and self-concern and self-indulgence and self-care and self-glory. But an age is coming when all glory, honor, and praise, all beauty, all significance will be seen where it truly belongs on God, the triune God, on God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as they're worshipped in their triune perfection for all eternity. And they are worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship, worthy of our honor and glory. They're the ones that have all significance. God is the one who we ought to adore and worship and fear. Because Jesus says, follow me. It's Jesus you're following. Jesus who's strong. Jesus who's kind. Jesus who loves you like no one else in your life will ever love you. Jesus who created you. Jesus who understands you. Jesus says, follow me. And the one you're following understands your weaknesses. He understands your fear. He understands your shame. You're supposed to follow the one who's gentle and compassionate, who would see a bruised reed and never snap it, who would see a smoldering wick and never snuff it out. You're called to follow King Jesus, who's the sovereign one, the omnipotent one, the king of angels, the first and the last. You're called to follow Jesus. He's the one calling you to follow him, to pick up your cross, and that cross will lead to glory and to resurrection. You're called to follow him, and he'll lead you out of the fear of death that has enslaved you for your whole life. You're called to follow him and bring every burden and every worry and every heartache and every shame and let him carry it for you. He'll bear your burdens. He'll pick up your anxieties. He will comfort you. Follow him and watch Jesus give your life significance and meaning as he hides your life in him. Watch him give you an identity that will transform your destiny. Follow him and he meets all your needs and provides for you an every season of your life. Follow him as he calls you to the age to come. Follow him to the edge of death. And when your eyes close in that last day of your life and your heart beats its final beat, you will find yourself in the arms of King Jesus and you will follow him as you followed him in this life except perfectly and forever. Follow him into the age to come where he will rule and reign perfectly in a world where there is no pain or sorrow or sin or death or evil. He is calling you to come, to walk after him, to follow his steps and be transformed so that you will actually be like him more and more every day for all eternity. Jesus says, follow me. And the way of cross is the way of glory. Father, help us to see it. Help cold, indifferent hearts to see it. Even right now as we're, we're praying, as our eyes are closed, as we're 
aware of what you've said. Anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I pray that those balances in the hearts and minds of these students would be so clearly tilted in favor of truth, of Jesus being worth it, of his compassion and beauty and justice and wrath and glory and love being far more than all the pleasures earth has to offer us. May we scorn all other honor and glory to give our lives to Jesus, to follow him, and to know that someday, after the cross, comes the crown. In Jesus' name.